Welcome to Science and Wisdom Live, where scientists and meditators meet. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to do this first Meet the Speaker interview with you. These are meant to give us a little glimpse of the people we're talking to in the, the dialogues. We'll have this dialogue in November um, with you and several other distinguished speakers. But the purpose of this is just to get to know you a little better. And I'm sure, as a, especially now as a monk, you have a very humble attitude, um, maybe not wanting to always talk about yourself so much. So I really appreciate you making the chance to do this because I think it'll help our audience understand who you are and how you got here. Thank you. So we wanted to start out by asking about your childhood. If you could tell us about some event from your childhood that you think helped define who you are today. Childhood is a long time ago. I think when I was a youngster, at the time of university, I think then change of life started to happen, so to say. <laughs> so I was studying hydrology. And I always had a bit of interest in, in, in martial arts and started with hardcore taekwondo, then went to kung fu and then tai chi. And then uh, I got more interested in, in the philosophy. When I turned 20, then I started to have more interest in the spirituality of life and then stopped going to parties and then I started studying also a little bit Chinese medicine. And yeah, that developed in, in kind of more interest in philosophy and that took a direction towards uh, Buddhism in 1993. And when I was uh, turned 23, then I went to a Buddhist center in the Netherlands called Matre Institute. I never had attended any teaching before, but then actually one weekend changed my mind in a particular way. <laughs> I had many questions in life. So what's the purpose of life? Uh, when do you can't really get satisfaction? You know, what's lacking? And why are some people suffering more than others? In this particular form of Buddhism, which is actually a science of the mind, it's philosophy. Not that I straight away had all the answers, but I could see there's a lot of information here and openness to reasoning, to do research and ask questions. So that brought me to the idea, oh, I can find some answers in this kind of in-depth philosophy of the science of the mind. Well, that's, that's great. And so it sounds like you're one of these people really searching for, you know, deeper meaning in your life. Did that carry through when you were, you know, much younger or was there a specific moment where it flipped for you and you found, you know, your life wasn't satisfactory and you started searching or were you kind of born in this way of looking for something bigger from the start? I don't think so. When I was, you know, in, in, in a teenager, I never really had any interest in, in these matters at all, you know. So that came later in life, yeah, when it turned about, but is it, I think, 18, 19 then I start interest started develop developing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very interesting. And so now, obviously, you've made a, a very deep turn um, towards the spiritual in your mm -hmm. life. Can you talk about how that brings you satisfaction and meaning in your everyday life? You know, now that you've made that decision, to to become an ordained person is quite you know you change your life quite drastically. Uh, so it's quite a decision, but up till now, I never really regretted it. Because what we try to do is to understand our mind and its constructive and destructive emotions. And not only understand that, but also how to transform the mind, to, to generate more constructive way of thinking and, and to eliminate or transform, so to say, the destructive emotions. So it's, to train the mind is a long-term goal, 
and it takes a long time. But over time, you can see possibilities are there, and that gives more satisfaction in life. So it sounds like you know the meaning and satisfaction in your life now comes from these mental techniques that you've learned, the essence of training your mind towards the deeper aspects of understanding reality and the purpose in life. Yeah, I think so. I mean, to, to examine the mind and see the potentials for the mind, the possibility to change, and not only possibility to change, but also to develop more constructive forms of emotions opposing to the destructive ones. And that, yeah, that automatically brings more peace of mind, so to say. So having seen those aspects, I think that's probably gives kind of satisfaction. Yeah, wonderful. This series that we're beginning with Science and Wisdom, obviously is about science and the com- contemplative tradition. Can you talk a little bit how scientific research has informed any of your, you know, meditative practice or, you know, contemplative training? I mean, there's a few few points in science which helped me quite a bit is uh, to see research being done in the fields of neurophenomenology, yeah, so that actually consciousness can influence brain activity and and there's the aspect of neuroplasticity, possibility to change. So reading that from the scientific background is, is very supportive to see not only on a subjective level of experience, but it's, it's kind of a reality. And another aspect is that we always examine, especially in the philosophy, the ultimate nature of reality. So then if you examine the modern findings in quantum mechanics, and especially I'm quite inspired by David Bohm's view of wholeness and the implicate and explicit orders, it's very inspiring to see that if you come from a scientific background with empirical and mathematical language, you come to a kind of similar conclusion as we in, in Buddhist philosophy actually come by the using the reason of epistemology and examining reality. So it's very inspiring to see that there's a common ground between the two. And that's true from the point of view of psychology as well as from the point of view of quantum mechanics or ultimate reality. Yeah, as as I'm sure you've been watching His Holiness the Dalai Lama's, you know, many different teachings, the abundance of teachings he's been giving. Many times he said that he now meditates half on quantum physics, you know, when he's considering the nature of reality. Do you do you have any insight into what he means by that? Is that something that, you know, you yourself do in your meditation when you, you know, meditating on emptiness or different aspects of reality? Do you reflect on these quantum theoretical aspects? I mean, theoretical aspects, uh, I'm not really well, uh, very knowledgeable about quantum mechanics, of course, but what His Holiness also tells the monks to do is to, to study the theory, though we don't have the knowledge of the of mathematics behind it, but the philosophy of it we can study, and this can be quite helpful, because also then we see that although things appear very concrete out there, if you look at the quantum level, then nothing exists in that concrete, inherent manner. So everything is interdependent. And that helps us a lot in our philosophy as well when we talked about different levels of interdependence and we talk about similar aspects of, of things don't exist from their own side. It's just, you know, the wholeness or the connection or the relativity of the interdependence is actually a more aspect of the whole than just individual parts. Yeah, so that things don't exist the way that they seem on the surface and that when you probe how they exist it turns out to be interdependent, including the interdependence with the minds and the perceiver. Yeah, that's right. We have a view of the mind-only school of Buddhist philosophy, for example, and it very much talks about this aspect, that whatever is being perceived by a particular individual depends so much on that consciousness of the individual, because all of us perceive different objects in different ways. Yeah, so that correlation between observer and observed is, 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 is very evident also in, in, 
in different forms of Buddhist philosophy. And it's very interesting to relate that with what we find in, in, in modern uh, physics of quantum mechanics. I wonder if, if that's what, I'm always curious, you know, the Dalai Lama has been much more open with his talking about his own practice. And I wonder, you know, what aspects of quantum theory he's, <laughs> he's reflecting on. Because there is that one, the aspect of breaking things apart into parts, you know, this like a logical analysis that I think we can all understand if you have the education. But then this more, you know, mystical aspect that even science reveals of the depend, interdependence of the mind with the observed phenomenon. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I mean, in, in, in the mind only, it, it talks about previous habituation patterns that we have created for a long period of time, and that influences what appears to our mind. And that's very true in David Bohm's philosophy behind things that appear, that it's very much influenced by the observer itself. It's very interesting material. What do you, what do you think the dialogue between science and between the contemplative traditions, why do you think this is important? Um, we're about to undertake one, and of course the Mind and Life Institute has been doing this for years. Where do you see the importance of the, this dialogue between science and um, meditative tradition, contemplative tradition? The dialogue, I think, is very important because uh, we use different met methodologies. In science, we use a different methodology. In, 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 in the more contemplative kind of traditions, is a different form of approach of reality, of the mind. And, but that doesn't mean either of those approaches are correct or incorrect. Yeah, I think we can learn a lot from each other, and especially in the fields of the mind science, especially in the fields of psychology. Because we have an incredible increase in modern society of the external development, so to say, which brings a lot of benefit to society, but the internal development is lacking. And we see during the yeah, recent lockdowns, or the increase of depression and anxiety and fear, and, and you know, people being unhappy and not satisfied in life, that is quite, quite a problem in society. And that can be addressed and, and that, that can be approached by building these correlations between scientific research as well as contemplative kind of traditions to let people recognize these aspects in society are a problem, first step, and then see if there's possibilities to do something about it and using different technologies or different methods to, to address the issue. Yeah, so the, the contemplative traditions can, can bring the deeper understanding of the mind to the, the insights into the material world and the physical world that the scientific method brings. I'm sure you've read a lot of these mind and life books. Like I, I've read at least 10 or 15 of them over the year. They publish every year. And I, be, I bet you've attended them, uh, maybe, maybe even seen this holiness in the person. Are there any specific examples that come up for you of uh, where you've seen that dialogue between science and you know, contemplative traditions really work well that you recall in your memory and um, yeah. being impactful? Yeah, I mean, going back to this aspect of, of the science of the mind, especially the research being done of, of, of you know, meditators who train their mind over a sustained period of time, and that has an incredible effect on brain activity. Accomplished practitioners produce gamma waves beyond the chart of, of an ordinary brain. And that indicates a kind of spiritual tradition that can train the mind in a way that you can deal much better with, with afflictions, much better with destructive emotions, so to say. So that's a kind of evidence is right there. And the methodology is right there. And the methods are present. It's just a matter of fact of connecting the two together, the scientific world and the contemplative traditions. 
And then I think we, if you have a few of those platforms going within society, then something more constructively can be done in eliminating these kind of destructive emotions or the problems in society as anxiety, fear, depressions, this kind of problem many people are facing. Yeah. So, so the way that science has um, shown genuine transformations to the brain and the brain activity that correspond to what meditators report as their inner experience, you think that's probably one of the biggest uh, impacts it's had for you? I think so, because those meditators, they spend a lot of time contemplating these, these aspects of the science of the mind and its philosophy, and they're producing the results of what we say in, in the scriptures, what is possible. So evidence yeah. is there. So the methodology is there, evidence is there. So there are methods, they work if you apply them in a particular way. So that's, that's very interesting to see. And it's very inspiring uh, as well to see the result is being produced with this kind of methodology. Yeah, it points to, you know, science being able to detect some of these invisible states. Like some, sometimes when people tell me, you know, they don't believe in immaterial things, I say, well, do you believe in love? <laughs> you know, or, or do you believe in mathematics? You know, and it seems like some of these experiments point toward um, actually maybe being able to measure some of those things. Like you mentioned gamma waves. Like what does gamma waves off the charts correspond to from a spiritual dimension? Or I mean, experience. what I've understood from, from, from other kind of friends who are in the field of science is kind of, it produces a kind of capacity to deal with issues in life and to not only deal with issues in life, but not to grasp at, at emotions, you know, to they come, they go, you know, they, it's a kind of flux. That means that if destructive emotions come up, uh, because we all have them, but we don't hold on to them, because everything is in the nature of fluctuation. Everything is in the nature of impermanence, right? Problems come, abide for some time, and disintegrate. If we grasp at a problem, then only it becomes more intense. So we all have problems, but a lot of mental suffering, I think, can be prevented by using particular techniques. Mm. And, and they are available. And it's been shown that uh, certain of those techniques, they've been very beneficial and, and seem to work. Mm. So it sounds like it, uh, that, that idea of gamma gamma waves being very high corresponds to like resilience and acceptance and present presence openness without like the tight grasping and yeah yeah it's, it's more because one of my friends also we did some research regarding Dzogchen practitioners when you talk about people who recognize the ultimate nature of the mind they also score in the same kind of level and it's true there's the openness spontaneous kind of aspects of the mind which doesn't really hold on or grasp to kind of the more co coarser aspects of the mind as we see in destructive emotions, for example. And it brings more peace of mind and, and more happiness and the capacity to transform. So that's a very positive thing. Yeah, it's definitely a state we'd all like to be in. I've, every once in a while, I feel a little bit of that. <laughs> I'm sure you do too. <laughs> okay, uh, the last question. Uh, this is about a wish. I think <laughs> if you were granted one wish, that science and contemplative wisdom um, could come together to solve one current pressing problem together. Which problem would you choose? You have a lot to choose from right now. <laughs> so. I mean, uh, yeah, I think the most important issue is, is you know, the, the elimination of destructive emotions. Every problem we have in society, if it's physically caused or caused by verbal expressions of conversations between countries or within a particular society, Every physical action of war, every miscommunication is all rooted in our kind of mental attitudes. And those mental attitudes, they, they, they can be transformed. 
And if there's destructive emotions becoming present, then our physical and verbal behaviors can also be destructive and can cause a lot of disturbance in relation with other people and society as well as complete countries, as you see verbal abuse going between different countries of, of different presidents or whatsoever. It's kind of, if you go back to the origin of all these problems, it's, it's actually rooted in the mind. If we can't do something about that aspect, then if we take away all destructive emotions or transform them in constructive ones, then I think we'll be a much peaceful and, and happy, uh, happy world or happy planet, so to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's very wise, right? Like if all these external problems we face from politics to climate change, you know, they're rooted in the mind and in destructive emotions. So um, that certainly seems like the wisest answer. I don't know how we could, you could lead everybody <laughs> towards addressing their own destructive emotions, but I guess at least we can work on ourselves. <laughs> what, what, what do you say to that? You know, It's not an easy task, right? But you say you wish, so that's my wish. If it's possible or not is a question, but at least we can go in that direction. Yeah. To eliminate all destructive emotions is something to be wished for, but not as easy to be accomplished. But at least we can start uh, to go in that direction. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. Well, that's a very nice way to end. Um, I, I share your wish with you to eliminate all disturbing emotions. Yeah, let's hope the wish comes true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, may your wish come true. Well, thank you very much, and I look forward to our dialogue you know, with the other participants um, in a couple of months from now. Thank you.